work, wealth, wisdom. This is DC Entrepreneur. We're sharing stories, ideas, and lessons from startups and businesses in the pursuit of innovation. And we're helping build a community of problem solvers and thought leaders in the Washington area. Now, here's your host, George Mocharco. Today's podcast is sponsored by Geotech Consulting. Geotech helps startups, small businesses, and nonprofits focus on their content creation. Your message either adds value or fills space. What is your outreach doing? Online at geotechconsulting.com. This is George Macharco of DC Entrepreneur. I'm speaking today with Willie Blunt. He's the founder of Blue Infusion Technologies and the creator of Bear Tech Loves. Welcome today, Willie. Hey, welcome. It's good to, good to be here. Hey, so Willie, uh, tell me a little bit about the background of uh, your company, Blue Infusion Technologies, and how you came up with the idea for the Bear Tech Smart Gloves. So Blue Infusion Technologies is a company which actually develops, you know, technologies, wearable tech, particularly um, our first product is uh, Bear Tech Gloves, which uh, I invented um, several years back. I came up with this concept that I was riding my motorcycle, and the problem I actually had was trying to control my music. You know, I'd have my earbuds in, and I'd be riding along, and, you know, I'd just have a challenge trying to either turn it down. or. So anyway, I looked into all these uh, solutions that actually exist in the marketplace, these helmet units or, or you know, motorcycle speakers, and none of them really just worked for me. They, they, they did the job, but not the way I thought they should be done. So I thought that I wish somebody would just invent a way to control it from your hand without having to remove your hand from your handlebars. So after some time, I decided that uh, maybe I should be that guy. So I went, I have uh, some military background where I really picked up electronic theory and, and, and whatnot, and I started drawing uh, concepts and then building this, this uh, building this technology into a glove and here we are about five years later um, I started the project in about 2010 and we started going to market in 2012 and uh, you know here we are uh, on Shark Tank which is probably the biggest um, <laughs> marketing push we're ever going to see right now so how did you know you had a winning idea for a product you know, it was interesting because, um, you know, I, I do this at home, and my wife was never too, she wasn't too keen on it. She was like, ah, you know, whatever you're doing here. But I would talk to people, and they'd say, hey, that's a great idea. That's genius. And, you know, you have to be careful with, you know, that. Because a lot of people are just going to kind of give you lip service and say, oh, that's great. Or there's also those naysayers who are going to say, you know, you're wasting your time. What are you thinking? So it really came down to, did I like the project? Did I think it was going to be good? And was it going to work? for me. Ultimately, when I built my first prototypes and was able to, to tool them, it only confirmed, you know, my sense that this is really a thing. This is good and this is going to work. And, uh, you know, so that really gave me the sense and the drive to for There's also the, you know, once I realized how good it was, that maybe there might, might be a financial benefit here. So, uh, you know, I took it forward and was, that was pretty much it. Now, you just mentioned that you were on Shark Tank. Can you tell me what the experience was like going on Shark Tank? Uh, I know you appeared on there with your CEO, Tariq Rogers. Tell us about what the experience was like going on Shark Tank. Yeah, it was um, interesting. We When we first 
um, looked into getting onto Shark Tank. Now, we've been told by this idea from people for years, you guys should go on a Shark Tank. Oh, this thing will be a hit on Shark Tank. You know, like, okay, you know, and we were at different stages of the company, and we're never really sure how it was going to do or what was going to happen or if we were in the right place, you know, this, any other. So anyway, about a year ago, um, one of our team members went to a Shark Tank casting call. It's where they have people come in and, you know, sort of pitch an idea to a, you know, a fake panel of sharks, and they sort of evaluate, hey, do you have a good idea? Do you not have a good idea? You know, how do you present it? All these different factors. And um, ultimately, we ended up making it through the several rounds that you have to go through in order to get to the actual pitch opportunity. Wow. And unfortunately, I can't go into detail about those rounds. Um, you know, first round is fairly public. They have a, yeah. a casting call, and you say, oh, great, I'm going to go do the thing. And then after that, it's a matter of will they call you back, you know. And uh, my understanding is you have about 40,000 companies um, annually that try to get onto the Shark Tank, and only 0.004% of them actually get to – air on, on, on the tank. So, you know, it's a really hard um, process. It's uh, very rules-oriented. It's not just, hey, is your product good? Is your person good? It's, are you lucky enough to get onto the tank? So I'm going to have to attribute, you know, attribute some of your product and a lot of it to our team, but, you know, a good amount of it to, to luck. Do make you sign all these confidentiality agreements. They really lock you in to make sure that, you know, they're and we'll call it a secret is guarded, you know. Um, but it was definitely an amazing experience. Once we, um, you know, we flew out to Culver City, which is where the filming is, we, uh, you know, they really kind of helped us figure out how we're going to manage this process. And then when you go into the tank, you have this series of emotions that just runs through and you're thinking, just don't choke. If you know, whatever happens, as those doors swing open and you're walking down and you see those sharks sitting in those chairs at the end of the hallway, you're thinking, okay, okay, do you remember my pitch? Okay, is this going to play out right? Oh, goodness, don't sweat. You know, <laughs> and you go in there and then uh, and you just, you know, I can only speak for myself, you know, and hopefully for most part, you go off autopilot, you know, you go in and you say, okay, this is the business, this is the deal, this has to happen. And, you know, you get right to work and um you know you try to have fun with it yeah it's interesting that you say that because i i know i've seen a couple episodes where you can see some of the entrepreneurs that go on there maybe don't necessarily tank in the interview or their pitch but they 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 do kind of have something comical about the idea producers of the show will underpin it with like some kind of you know background tracking music to make it seem like it's more comical like the, the sharks don't have any you know interest in the in the product or the idea or um you know that particular entrepreneur's presentation it's out of your hands you know it's all down to the editing it's all down to whatever they decide to put on the air at that point in time so you can go in there with i think with a stellar pitch and if you hiccup somewhere and you you know gaff they might enjoy it and say, hey, this is good TV. We're putting that on, you know. And, uh, you know, on the flip side, you might slip up all over the place and the editor's like, okay, we're going to leave these other parts out and we're going to put this part in. And, you know, in the, at the end of the day, it's, did you get a deal? Yes, no. Um, did you get aired? Yes, no. This is cool. Well, could you please tell us when the episode is airing? Yeah, it's airing on February 5th on ABC, um, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's very exciting. So we don't know what, which pitch we're going to be, whether we're the first one, the last one, or, you know, anywhere in the middle. 
But uh, that's our date. And so what we're doing is we're having a party at uh, Buffalo Wild Wings here in Columbia. And what's interesting is we're trying to get as many people there as we can to just kind of support the effort. And... It's funny because I was talking to another entrepreneur who is also going to be airing that same night, um, who we saw while we were out there, and so she's nervous. And I asked her, I said, "How are you going to? What are you going to do? Are you going to have a viewing party?" She goes, "Oh no, just me and the family." I was like, "Really?" She goes, "Yes." She goes, "I have no idea how they edited it, and I don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody if it doesn't go the way I wanted to go." And so, yeah. So my response was, "I understand that. That's true. However, people are going to watch it either way. So either way, they're going to see what." Happened. So I figure I'd just rather be there, and you know, because you can talk a lot more about what happened after the show airs. You know, we can really go into some. Oh, why'd you say this, or why'd the shark say that? And you know, you can really sort of speak more to what happened after it's aired because it's then public. Sharks, let alone watch it live with the entrepreneur and be able to ask the questions. You know, about it. You know, everybody really gets to sit home on the, you know, couch. You know, with the family because it's a family show, and you know, experience the show and talk about it in their in the comfort of their own home, but usually limited to only what they've seen on TV, only the knowledge they have. You know, I think it's it's fun to you know add an element to that. Cool, cool. How long did it take to go from the idea of the Beartech Love, you know, from conception to when you had a minimum viable product? I mean, what was the process like there? Yeah, so basically, it's interesting. The idea came to me, um, you know, really, uh, I think the idea actually came to me in 2009. Um, at that time, I was actually a part of a different startup. Um, you know, we were developing a different technology, and that ended up falling apart, um, you know, in early 2010. And at that point in time, I realized maybe... I should go ahead and give a shot to this other thing, which is a glove. So let's just say I started, um, you know, really started drawing out how this thing was supposed to work in 2010. Um, prior to that, for the year prior to that, I was the concept was in my head and really it was just brewing. And then once 2010 came around, I started actually drawing it up from the point where I started drawing to the point where I actually had a minimum viable product. I would actually say that was probably... 18 to uh, 20 months process. Largely for a couple reasons, though. One was I was trying to figure out how a lot of the technologies I didn't quite understand how I was going to make work. And I'd spent time talking to engineering firms about my idea after, of course, I filed my provisional patent application. The, the, um, I talked to a number of companies that, you know, I sort of explained the product to them. I said, it's pretty simple how I want it to work. And I'd wait for these engineering firms to come back to me with how much it would cost to develop. Now, so let's give me, give, let me just give you an idea of what I faced when first starting this. I drew a concept and I went to a, a firm in Germantown, Maryland. You know, well-known firm. They do great work. And I said, hey, I want to build this thing. What's it going to cost? How long does it take? Um, how do we make this happen? So they studied it, and about two weeks later, they came back to me and said this project was going to cost between five and $900,000 and take 24 to 36 months to accomplish which blew my mind because I thought that was just way too much and way too long. And if that's what I have to go with, I can't do this. I just, I'm not going to be able to afford to make this happen, especially being unproven, untested, and, you know, not knowing for sure that there's a market yet. Um, so what I ended up doing was just 
doing the research myself. Started, you know, going to Home Depot and, you know, back then there was a Radio Shack and, you know, Amazon.com and just downloading and buying stuff and learning with, uh, you know, kits from DigiKey. I just putting together troubleshooting, tons of reading, tons of Google until I was able to, and obviously the local motorcycle shop and buying lots of gloves that I've ended up tearing apart. And, uh, you know, so 18 to 20 months later, I had a product that I was ready to show to people. Um, and at that point in time, I had taken some videos, made some videos of it, and put it on the Internet, on YouTube. And they were really prototype videos. So if you go and look up uh, probably Beartech prototype or something like that, um, you'll find the old videos where, you know, it still plugs into a wall for power, giant circuit board, but I'm controlling like an iPhone 3. GS, which was pretty cool. cool. So uh, one of the things I saw in the products is that you have, it's like a Wi-Fi uh, module that goes on the side of the zipper. Can you explain how you came up with the idea for that and, and why that's different than you know using like Bluetooth? Sure, yeah. So basically what happens is the idea is you want to be able to control a device without having to reach for that device. So your glove has a technology in it where you touch your thumb to a finger and it will trigger a function on your smartphone. And so that's where we started because my initial problem was with a smartphone. When designing it, I thought it might make sense to make it what I like to call future-proof by adding, by, by actually separating out, the, separating out the pieces. Separate the glove from the electronic module. So the electronic module in the original version is Bluetooth. Every phone is Bluetooth capable, and you can control your music and your calls. So while um, we were discussing how do we make this better, what can we do to, um, to reach more people to solve another problem? In the same fashion, we recognized that GoPro cameras was ultra popular, especially when you're out skiing. You know, also when you're out motorcycling, I think a lot of this knowledge, you know, sort of stemmed from when we went to some of these trade shows. So my job, again, was to figure out how to control a GoPro camera without having to reach for the GoPro camera. We talked to the guys at GoPro, we've, you know, we tried all those things and nobody really wanted to help us figure it out. And they said, you know what, we're not going to stop you from trying to figure it out, but we're not going to help you. You'll figure it out. I can't tell you why that is. Either way. Now I have a challenge. Let's make this happen. And so I was online a lot, and I figured out how to, um, you know, how to communicate with a GoPro camera outside of their remote control, outside of your smartphone, and then did the design work to create the blue module. So now this blue module is a Wi-Fi module, and it controls a GoPro camera. Of course, we can control it. We can program it to control anything else that might be Wi-Fi and receives commands. But uh, GoPro, being you know the largest action camera company in the country, um, was really a very interesting uh, target for us. And uh, so we went for it, and now a consumer can control their camera or their phone just by putting in the appropriate module. So it seems like there's actually a lot of other markets for the product besides just the motorsports and skiers of the world. There's different applications you could do for really any kind of sport. You're exactly right, yeah. So when we talk about that, you got bicyclists, you've got people in all sorts of sports, if you're saying, who are carrying, you know, who want to record their experience. 
you know, and the challenge with the GoPro camera is the buttons on top of it. If you're wearing gloves, as you do in a lot of sports, that might potentially involve a fall or might need your hands to be protected from the cold or, you know, some other element, um, it's hard to find that button sometimes. And then when you find that button, you're not, you can't be sure that you actually pressed it because there's a single button on top of the camera, which either starts recording or starts recording, but the camera's on your head or on your chest. And if it's in one of those places, you can't see the little flashing red light in the front of it that tells you it's on or not, uh, that it's actually recording. So we, one of the benefits that we put into this is to make sure that every function is a discrete function on a separate finger. So when you want to start recording, it's one touch point. When you want to stop recording, it's a separate touch point rather than it's the same one. And you're not sure if you're in a, you know, think of it digitally, you're in an on or off state. You know, every time you press one, for sure you're on. You press the other one, for sure you're off rather than um, sort of the toggle. But, yeah, you're exactly right. So, basically, our limitation then comes down to the style of gloves and the kind of gloves that, you know, you might use. So, while we make them for for uh, skiing and motorcycling, um, bicyclists, we use them. We just don't make bicycle gloves yet. But we're working to um, to communicate with real um, existing brands to integrate our technology into it, which actually is interesting point that I might want to add is when developing the technology, I never wanted to be a glove manufacturer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We have this technology, but you have dozens of apparel companies who are making these gloves that are stellar that, you know, that speak to whoever their audience might be, you know, and we can't answer all of that and we aren't glove experts. Fortunately, we have partnered with some glove companies to make our gloves, which are, which actually are really, really good, but that doesn't satisfy the entire populace. So our plan was to license the technology to major glove companies. So you take the Burtons and you take the Joe Rockets and you take the um, North Face or, you know, Alpine Stars who make all these different kinds of gloves. We say, hey, here's our technology. You put it inside your glove and we will deliver this technology to all the consumers and they can have now their favorite glove with their favorite features plus their favorite technology. Um, that too. Exactly right. And it is a brand new product. And that's the thing. So there's also consumer education. You know, it's um, the cost of marketing. But I think what I was, um, you know, going to say for the, um, the challenge of getting companies to license your technology, um, in our case, we have a... Uh, technology that goes in the glove, but we also have a separate piece, which is that module, the Bluetooth for the Wi-Fi module, which when we learned from uh, our trade shows and talking to the CEOs of all these different companies, all of which love the technology, there is not one that said, oh, this is crap technology, we don't want it, but unfortunately they all uh, recognize the financial challenge, the cost it takes to integrate this into the manufacturing, and then figuring out how do we get a consumer to purchase our glove with our new tech in it, plus the module they choose. Um, there's a, a markup, which is what causes the problem. So, um, but yeah, there's that, that, that's this whole other story. You do learn a lot, you know, going through your process. It's an expensive education, but you know, it's 
that's good to know. Yeah. So uh, what kind of patents does BearTech carry? And do you have one for, like, the motion control feature? Yeah, so basically we have um, patents for the um, utility of touching your thumb to your finger and causing action while wearing a glove. Um, our patents include the actual modules, uh, particularly the Bluetooth module, um, you know, that it's actually connectable and removable from um, a hand-worn covering. Um, and our patents are... Um, issued in now in Mexico, um, Canada, and the EU um, has the patent issued, I believe, and in the U.S. we are still patent pending. Um, long process, but you know we're getting there. Right. So that brings up the question too: Do you, do you see that there is a potential for exporting the product to markets overseas? Yeah, yeah. So you know, there's some places where you know I'm not going to name any names. China. There's some places that you know once they get their hands on it, it's going to be replicated, you know, and done internally. We've we've had a lot of discussions with a lot of factories. We had a lot of discussions with with um, manufacturing experts about how we might circumvent that challenge, you know. Um, but, yeah, we do feel that there is definitely um, an international um, value to this. You know, when we talk about this, this technology, like, as we've been talking during this podcast, it's been primarily sports we've been talking about, you know, whether it's running or cycling or skiing or any of this kind of stuff. But there's a, a military value, too. You know, really, because of the way it's designed, we have the ability to say, yeah, sure, I'm controlling a um, smartphone, I'm controlling a, a camera, but you can also do this thing to control drones. You know, it's just a matter of modifying the technology inside the module. We can control drones. Let's just say we're going to control, you know, some other, you know, secret military equipment that we're going to put in some, you know, some encrypted wireless protocol inside the module to make that happen. And, um... It's, it's it's definitely a not a one-trick pony. Uh-huh. You know, if you will, there's one of the things we can uh, apply technology to. No, no, but but I mean, I mean, y- you've basically seen that there's a lot of potential outside what the the current market is for just consumer applications, which is what I think I I think I heard you say it was like a five and a half billion dollar industry in just snow and motorsports alone. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, and snow and motorsports alone is about a five and a half billion dollar industry, and then you start, you know. Hopping in the military, and I mean, that's in the U.S. You know, we start expanding to you know some of these countries that have you know massive um, populations of skiers and motorcyclists. Uh, you know, that number multiplies. Yeah, well, it seems like the wearables market has also just exploded in recent years. I mean, I'm seeing everything from yoga pants that vibrate to correct your posture, from you know. Wireless, hands-free, like um, uh, beanie caps that you can have that have audio piped in. I mean, it just seems like there's there's really like an explosion right now uh, for consumer technology that that uh, is in the wearables market. I, I use something. Uh, it's called a Lumo Lift, which is supposed to help correct your posture by giving you like these slight vibrations when it knows you're slouching. And it's just like that's not something I ever would have seen probably like twenty or thirty years ago. So it's it's exciting. So, You're right, and that's funny. It's, it is definitely funny. I think it's the action. I mean, it's the the invention of new technology which spurs the invention of new technology. You know, like, you know, years ago, there are lots of – years ago, there wasn't a smartphone, you know? And so this idea would never have, I think, really come to fruition because, you know, it wasn't dreamt of to remotely control 
a phone, let alone have the phone be everything that you need, you want a phone to be, and then some, you know, it's your camera, it's your, your address book, it's your, your photo album, you know, <laughs> your phone is pretty much everything today. Um, and that said, while right now we have this great technology that I think is appropriate for um, the current time that we live in, um, you know, technology is going to change, which comes back to the whole future-proofing. You know, right now, Bluetooth is huge. You know, um, Wi-Fi is big. And, but, you know, we got other technologies that are creeping up. You have AMP Plus. You have uses for RF. You have all these other things. And so long as technology changes and will likely continue to get smaller, all we have to do is create a module that plugs into that technology. And if you have five pairs of gloves that you use for different activities and you just plug that one module into each of those gloves, um, when you upgrade that module, you just upgraded all your gloves. Yeah, yeah, that's it's good to think about future proofing because I, I think some, you're right. Uh, a lot of times, inventors and entrepreneurs are short sighted, just really inventing for the times that and, and the technology that we have currently, but not seeing you know what the the long term kind of applications could be. Right, right. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say about innovation and entrepreneurship? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so as far as Baratech is concerned, yeah, we've got, you know, all kinds of, you know, projects in the hopper. You know, we've got, you know, companies that, you know, seek us out because, hey, we'd love to be able to control this, that, you know, in the industrial spaces and, you know, some other places. Like, hey, we'd love to be able to. And we are always happy to work on that stuff because a lot of times it means they're going to pay us to do it. You know, <laughs> um, you know and I, I'm sure that once uh, Shark Tank airs, um, we're going to have other calls coming in from, you know, probably we that we haven't even thought of, you know, and that's one of the great things about going to shows and exposing your product and being on the front lines, if you will, talking to people who may actually use your product is they always find a way to apply it to their lives, you know, oh, I could use this for this because you make it do this and that's always, you know, revealing to us and like, this is great because, you know, people see it for more than just what we have, they see it for a way that they can use it down the line, which, you know, we appreciate and we want to archive that information because it's it's really valuable to us, you know. Um, but, yeah, so Baratech is, is going to be an ongoing thing. But as far as new stuff, I'm an entrepreneur at heart. You know, um, I love to build stuff. I love to see how we make things before. And I do have another project that's, uh, that's you know, coming along. I don't think the application for now, mind you, this is us talking here in 2016. You know, in 2018, it might be a whole different conversation. But I don't think right now the market for this product is quite as large as what we have for Baratech, but I think it's a significant market, and it's huge. Um, and a lot of fun. Unfortunately, until I finish the uh, prototyping, which hopefully will be done in the next three months or so, um, until I finish the prototyping, um, I can't really discuss it. I haven't even filed my professional patent. I'll tell you this, and uh, you know anybody who might be listening to this podcast, my experience filing the patents, you know, with Baratech, I filed my provisional patent um, pretty much as soon as I decided I was going to get serious with the idea. And by get serious, I mean, okay, now I'm going to do the drawings, now I'm going to try to, you know, get the electronics, figure out how to program it. The problem that I'd encountered was that before it was we were capable of going to market, the provisional patent application was coming up on this expiration date, which is one year. At that point in time, you have to file your non-provisional patent application, which is not trivial. It's not inexpensive. 
what you want to be able to do, or what I want to be able to do, and what I'm going to do with this newer product is file the provisional patent application after I've actually built my first prototypes. I'm not talking to anybody except for my engineers about it. Um, you know, after I've built my first prototype that I think is usable and I can get ready to take to a beta stage, I will uh, then file my provisional because at that point in time, your one-year mark starts. It gives you time to make some money on the product before you are committed to filing your actual full patent, which is going to be expensive. So I hope that made some sense and I hope that's a little nugget that some people can take with them when the question comes up, when do I patent, should I patent, and, uh, you know, it does timing matter. Right. And I'm going to say, from my experience, timing does matter. Yeah, I think absolutely timing matters um, simply because, you know, there's just historical proof of products that were either way ahead of its time or way behind the times and then released, you know, at a certain period chronologically that was either um, met with, you know, lots of just warm reception or kind of met in the marketplace with, you know, lack of sales. So, I mean, that's ultimately like the, really the indicator is just, you know, how willing is that particular market, uh, marketplace going to respond to that particular idea at that time? Cool. Yeah. So are you uh, then if all the money, then you've got to, I mean, you, you make great sales, then you know, great, I'll go ahead and spend this, you know, $30,000 on my patents. Is BearTech still raising capital? BearTech is always raising capital. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I guess it's part of the entrepreneur game when you start building stuff, unless you're Apple or somebody who's got, you know, endless money. Um, you know, you're raising capital for so many different reasons, whether it's to improve your team or to bring this next technology to market that's not quite there yet or whatever. So, yeah, so we're always raising capital. And, um, you know, the capital questions would go to, uh, would go to Tariq. Who is the um, you know the current CEO of the company, and he uh, he fields all those questions. Right. So, how can people contact you if they're interested in investing or buying the product? Absolutely. So, I can be contacted for sure at Willie W I L L I E at blueinfusion.com, and Tariq can be reached at Tariq T A R I K at blueinfusion.com B L U E I N F U S I O N dot com. So, Blue Infusion Technologies is actually the company that owns BearTech. BearTech is one of the projects of Blue Infusion Technologies. And uh, so that explains the email address. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks for joining us here today, Willie. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I wish you the best of luck with the BearTech Glove Venture and, of course, your future endeavors. Awesome. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. All right. Take care now. All right. Take care. Subscribe to this podcast via iTunes and connect with us on our blog, dc-entrepreneur.com. If you have any tips or ideas for stories, please tweet at us or message us on Facebook. Please tune in to our next episode, and thanks for listening.